Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show, Lena Smart, Chief Security Officer of MongoDB, and I team up to interview Dwight Merriman, co-founder and key contributor to MongoDB. Dwight Merriman is a true tech legend. In addition to co-founding and co-creating the MongoDB database and TenGen, now called MongoDB the company, he also co-founded and led several other well-known successful companies, including Business Insider, DoubleClick, and Gilt Group. In today's interview, Dwight shares openly and honestly about the motivations behind creating the database, which now actually claims nearly half of the entire NoSQL market. He talks about the decision to build the database rather than use something that existed at the time. Dwight's friendly, easy to talk to, knowledgeable, and probably one of the smartest individuals that I've had the pleasure of chatting with. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave a rating and a comment if you're able. Let us know what you think. Stay tuned. Hey, did you know that MongoDB University has been completely redesigned? That's right. Hands-on labs, quizzes, study guides and materials, bite-sized video lectures, programming language-specific courses. You can learn MongoDB in the programming language of your choice. Node.js, Python, C-sharp, Java, so many more. You can earn MongoDB certification by validating your skills and leveling up your career. Visit learn.mongodb.com today. So... It is my absolute pleasure, and I'm so glad that you could make it in person today, uh, to introduce uh, Dwight Merriman. He is the first CEO of MongoDB, and you were still coding, I understand. Uh, you're also co-founder uh, and director of MongoDB as of today. Are you still coding? I'm still coding or tinkering a bit myself, but not on the database anymore. I think there's uh, to really dive in and work on it. There's a certain minimum number of hours a week you have to work on it just to keep up with the code base and the state of everything because it's it's not short it's not a small program so yeah anymore amazing mm -hmm. and also in the room we have Mike Lynn who is our developer advocate um, and I know that you'll likely have some questions yeah, and, and sure. just fire ahead because probably. This will be the most interesting person I'll speak to in a yeah. while, too. Well, so. I'm, I'm fascinated already, and I've, <laughs> I've got so many questions for Dwight, but uh, I'm going to let you go ahead and, and ask away. Cool. Uh, so, the first question I have, and this has been a burning question of mine since I joined three and a half years ago, is how did you start the company? How did you start MongoDB? Right. So, when, when we started, actually, the name of the company was TenGen, and this was around 2008, or I forget the date maybe two months before that, I can't remember. The original, what we were really looking at the time is, is myself and our other co-founders, like Elliot, Kevin, you know, we've been working on various entrepreneurial projects and, and just, we were seeing this repeated pattern where, you know, over and over, right, you know, new product idea, you start building the system, you know, at this point, I've been doing that for quite a long time, so kind of knew what the best practices were at the time. But it was always around that time frame, 2000, January 2008, whenever it was. Uh, it just seemed like it was always a bit awkward. There was awkward and unesthetic, and it just seemed like there was a lot of duct tape and rubber bands. And even though those were best practices, right you know you would talk to ctos at the time you know and they would say things like you know putting memcached in front of databases is okay and roll your own sharding in front of mysql or postgres is okay but it sort of isn't it was because there wasn't a better way mm -hmm. and uh at the time and you know everything was that was really when the cloud computing and EC2 was really taking off. So it was very clear to us that cloud computing was the future. And a lot of the traditional products weren't very cloud friendly. So if you have a database that scales vertically, right? So I can make it bigger, but 
you know, then it's a, it's a mainframe or a Sun 6500 or something like that. It's like, that's kind of the opposite of some uh, a cloud principle, which is kind of like horizontal scalability and elasticity, right? And then if you tried to do, do it the other way horizontally, it was usually kind of rolling your own when it came to operational databases. And a lot of other things, but um, also just agile development was the way to go then, you know, iterative development, but a lot of the old tools, and this isn't just databases, but languages, everything, weren't really designed for that because they were invented earlier, so it's not their fault. So we were just saying, like, gee, there's got to be a better way to, to develop applications. And this is both on the, how to develop them how to code them and also on how to scale them and how to elegant how to run them in the cloud you know painlessly so our first concept was just we were going to do platform as a service so we were going to try to make a take do a fresh take on on the developer stack you know versus lamp and whatever else was common then and uh see what we could come up with so we were we started building a platform as a service system it was open source, and uh, this was very early. So it was, I think, when we went to beta, it was almost this, exactly the same time that, that Google's, was it Google App Engine? Yeah. It, it's the same time it came out it, to beta. Mm. So, like, our timing was very, <laughs> it was like when they came out with it, I was like, oh, okay, we're, uh, <laughs> we're think somebody there's thinking similar thoughts. And um, so that was fine. And then, but, you know, a few months later, as we got a little further into it, I was thinking about it and I was like, I'm looking at things like AWS where they have all these microservices and they're sort of like, I'm not going to give you a full cloud platform. I'm going to give you some building blocks for your toolbox. And over time, I'll give you more mm -hmm. because the scope is large. Like, you know, so today they have a lot of services, mm -hmm. but, you know, this, you know, we're kind of 15 years later. Ish. So if I give you a platform, though, it's sort of every, to give you everything you need, really, it's a big scope and it's going to take quite a while to build it. So I think platform and service makes sense. But we got further into it and we had something working kind of analogous to Google App Engine or I guess Heroku was around back then. Mm -hmm. It just felt like, boy, to get this to true maturity, you know, because it's this, there's so many pieces that you would want in it it's going to take a long time this is it's going to take a decade or something and for a startup you only have so much runway and, and it's just like and and now even today you know platform as a service i think is a good is a valid notion and concept but it's certainly not mature yet right the the sort of more aws style or um microservices style approach which you could do on all the big cloud platforms today. I just I say AWS because I'm just kind of contrasting it with the the past vendors back in the day. Approach is still the dominant approach. So so we've been building this and and really so what were we building right? So we were trying to build something where you'd write some code, you know, you put it in Git, and then you would just kind of click deploy, right? And it's sort of like it would deploy your app into our system in the cloud, try to handle scaling for you, including things like app server layer, app tier, you know, how many app servers should there be and load balancing for that. You know, all this is just happening automatically. You don't have to think about it at all. So it's, it's really trying to eliminate a lot of the operational overhead. You know, you know, it's just give you a platform. It's like, here's my app, you know, I've written all the code, deploy it and it just happens and you don't think about machines at all. So this is a aspiration, obviously, like what we built, like there's a little bit about machines. Like if we look at today with MongoDB and sharding and things like that, I mean, we do have things like serverless, but we also have things like sharding where, you know, as the person developing a system, you know, you you know how many shards you have, you know, you can charge, you can change it, but it's not like it's just completely opaque in that sense and likewise in your replica sets you know you have control over how many copies of things there are and but conception that was kind of the the path you know we were looking at you know completely elastic you know serverless too but as we looked at it we also wanted we were thinking about like what would we want if we were building a new app or system and it's like 
you know, there's there's certain features I wanted from the data layer. And if you really went to to something that was just 100% elastic, inf- infinitely scalable, and so forth, you're getting into things that were more like the early Amazon Dynamo stuff, where they're more, at least back then, it was just more like a key value store, key document store, if you will. You know, you didn't have the rich database functionality. So we didn't want to throw out like tons and tons of data layer functionality. So our approach was, it had some traditional elements to it, but then we tried to innovate on those. And it's like, yes, it's sharded, but it's auto sharded. Like you can, it'll do it. You don't have to write it yourself. And, and, and the replication it's, you know, it's still replication, but it's a lot more sophisticated than the traditional, just primary secondary model. And, you know, uh, push button on a lot of these things. So so we, you know, we've been building this platform. We had the app layer, data layer, and then it's just like, gee, this is such a large scope, you know, for a startup. You know, we didn't have many people at the time. And and, and it was like, maybe I feel like, like we should just do one or the other. We should do this, the app layer of the platform or the data layer, right? So if we look back at like Heroku, their data layer was Postgres, right? That's how they kind of um, reduced the scope. And then um, in the end, we decided to focus on the data layer because we were in beta with the platform. What was the platform called, by the way? Uh, Tengen. Tengen, okay. And then we called the data layer MongoDB. And um, since, since it was sort of like a, a module or a component, like we didn't mind using a slightly cheeky name uh, because uh, it wasn't the name of the whole product at the time. But actually, the background on the name is that the concept of Mongo is it's the middle of the word humongous, mm-hmm. and and half of the point of, was the horizontal scalability or easy scalability of the product, and then the other half is sort of developer productivity and agility. That's kind of where the name frame from. So it was the name of the subsystem. And then it's like, okay, that's all we're going to do now instead of the whole platform. So there was a pivot, if you will, which we did very early. Like things were going fine, like, but we were, getting, we were getting very good feedback on the beta of the platform. But I was just thinking ahead and like how this plays out. And it was like, you know, this is a lot to do. And, uh, and also the rate, of de- the rate of adoption of that model. So, but then thinking about, well, do we do the app layer or the data layer it, to kind of cut the scope? Like we were getting really good feedback on the data layer of the platform from the beta testers. So they were like, hey, I really like this. So that made help us feel like, okay, maybe let's just take the data layer. Let's unbundle it from this platform as a service thing and just make it a database, open source database you could run anywhere. And so we just kind of pulled it out of the code base so it was its own thing. And then it's like, well, I guess we need to write some drivers. So we spent like a month or two writing drivers and then we released like version 0.9. And then it was just all we were working on was MongoDB. And that was the company. What drove the decision to to go open source? Mm, That was going to be my question. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It it seemed pretty clear to us that the, the kind of traditional enterprise model was changing and uh, obviously there's a lot of things that were open source at the time there's a lot of things that were SaaS, and then there's some things that were freemium right that seemed like the the options that were people were doing for new stuff were those three they weren't the classic enterprise software they were maybe free like for example i hope i don't get this wrong i think splunk was it's free it was free for a small amount of data Mm -hmm. and then it turned into more like enterprise software and then of course you had any things that are SaaS or or you know maybe call it infrastructure as a service you pay for what you use and then there's just the open source stuff so we felt like okay we are a startup you know how do we get you know how do we get um awareness branding adoption people to try it as a startup you know they're very very big companies some of the biggest companies in the world have databases and you know how do we compete with them how do we compete with oracle how do we compete with amazon uh, things like this and it seems like the open source is the asymmetry there that lets you compete with them at the same time you know it was clear that things were moving into the cloud right so when we're thinking about open source licenses you know, obviously you could go all the way down to a BSD license, it's just free. 
and that's that's great if you're especially for community project but you know like we had investors and things like that so it's like we had we need a way to have revenue eventually you know we wanted sort of a license with more like a copy left it's like gpl but with everything moving into the cloud the traditional gpl copy left doesn't really work mm-hmm. so this was clear enough to us and even in 2008 so we made the license agpl i think it was one of the first um, projects that was agpl and it seemed like that was the right way to go at the time and i felt like i was ceo at the time so i was pretty involved in the decision so it seemed like well you know if it's if it's a problem, we can always just dual license it and with a, another license that's more flexible, right? You know, you can't go from a very... Permissive? Uh, yeah, permissive license to a less permissive license. Mm-hmm. But you can go the other way, right? Because you could still... You still keep the other license available if you liked it and you wanted... You know, you don't want to even go read the new one, uh, you know. But then you can throw... You could dual license and have something more permissive. So I thought, you know, that's... We can always go more permissive we can't go less permissive really and then three years ago we actually switched the license from agpl to this new license called sspl server-side public license which is it's super similar to agpl but if you if you did a diff on it it's only a couple sentences are different i think but uh it's we did this was a big decision um, that we didn't take lightly uh, because obviously the all the old releases are still available on AGPL, right? So uh, it was just for on a forward basis. It was like let's use this SSPL thing uh, we came up with, which is just basically saying you know if what you're building is just purely a database, like a general purpose database, then you're subject to the copy left. And this was coming out of like some analysis of AGPL and it was not totally clear that it did what the original intent was, that it totally worked legally. So we thought we needed to do that. That did push the product and the license into a slightly gray area where you know there's a classic definition of open source software, which is there's no restrictions on how you can use it. So, you know, with GPL, you know, you trigger the copy left by distribution. It's not how you're using it in your application. With this, it's actually, well, it sort of triggers on how you use it, right? So if you're doing something like Amazon RDS with the MongoDB source code, it would trigger. So it's offering offering your software as a service. Yeah, basically Mongo as a service, mm-hmm. if you offer that. You can do it with SSPL, but then you trigger the copyleft and you have to release your code just like you did with GPL. Right. So you could still do something like CentOS version of Mongo if you wanted that in, as a service. But so it was really a response to things, you know, where, you know, the, um, the cloud providers, you know, not just Amazon. I'm not trying to pick on them, but, you know, they're with RDS, you know, they're just taking every open source database and they're making a nice wrapped management layer on it and then but then it's like there's no we don't have any direct customers anymore right (laughs) and they wouldn't be paying us i think so um that was the notion so it's it gets gray then and you know a purist might say well that's not open source but it's i i think in practice it's completely practical you know if you're doing applications it's you can definitely use it for free Mm-hmm. Um, and without any encumbrances. Um, so I think that whole, the whole notion of, you know, how we define open source and the licenses thereof and the definition thereof, I think it's right now it's in a, a sort of a, a, a transitional stage where it needs to be iterated on because I love open source, but given this, these cloud models, um, and if you wanted to do anything that had a copy left, it just doesn't, the old ones don't work anymore. So, I mean, now we've seen since we did that, many other projects have done similar things. And, and I think from some of the standards bodies, we'll, I would predict we're going to see some new things that are in the spirit of that, but we're definitely not available when we thought we needed it because we, we talked to them and it just, that just the, the speed of motion wasn't working for us so it's 
I think in practice, basically nothing changes. You know, you're making an app. You want to use MongoDB. You, you know, you're you can use it for free. Your code is your code. You don't have to you don't have to release it or anything. You haven't triggered a copy left there. It's it, in the practice. I think it works great. But if you're open source specialist theorist, you write licenses and stuff. You you might quibble. Mm. That was fascinating. It was. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I'm now going to put my CISO hat, hat on. I guess I should have introduced myself at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Maybe we can cut that in. Uh, so yeah, uh, so CISO hat. Your experience as a developer and an entrepreneur, how do you see security has changed? So you've just given us an amazing history of how this company has grown from a few people as a startup to what, almost 5,000 employees. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I've worked in security for many years and I've seen a huge number of changes. I've worked in finance, I've worked in the power industry, which, you know, it's highly regulated. We're moving towards um, FedRAMP here, which is also very highly regulated with the federal government. So where do you see and how have you seen security change in your, your journey in technology? Yes. So, I mean, by way of background, you know, coming out of college, I was a CS major. First job is just software developer full time, right? So that was kind of my where it's coming from. But then over time ended up being a bit of an entrepreneur. I was involved in about half a dozen different startups and the last one I was involved with full time is MongoDB. I'm still involved, um, just not full time. So the, the the point of that is that on the entrepreneurial side, you know, you're trying to you come up with ideas for new products or maybe new startups. So you're trying to think ahead and think about future. You think you're you're looking at okay, what's what's coming? Like trends, like what are some trends like in terms of technology? What are some trends and what users need? And then if you try to, my approach is you try to intersect those, right? So if you go back to like 1995, you know, the internet was a big trend that was just on the cusp, right? So we might look at like, well, what do people need then? And then try to figure out some ideas for products. And of course there's millions of them. And then every new trend after that, you know, we could even do trends that were before that, like local area networks, right? They didn't used to exist at one point. So when those come out, you know, there's opportunities to create companies like uh, Novell or something. But then there's just so many, whether it's like, smartphones, social media, uh, uh, so many. But um, I feel like right now there's sort of an anti-trend, which is like there's some big trends right now that are pretty clear that are a big deal, like AI, right, is a big trend for the next decade, right? So there's going to be some big, some startups that become big, giant companies, kind of like you know, maybe like a Microsoft or something that come out of that space, I would assume. Of course, I'm like everybody else, I'm wrong all, half the time. But, uh, <laughs> but, but then you're right half the time. Right. So. <laughs> so there are some big trends right now, like that's an example. But I also feel like right now there's an anti-trend and it's security. And by that, I mean the trend is towards massive problems because the problem is getting just harder every day. Yep. Right. So it's, you know, information security is always, since computers have existed, been an issue. But every year it gets harder. Right. So pre-internet, it was a bit easier. Right. When you're not plugged into the entire planet, your systems. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and then pre, you know people having computers at home or their own phones and accessing your systems from that, you know, it's a bit easier. And just the inherent complexity of modern software and just kind of the amazing amount of things you can do with it easily now. Just the more complex it is, it's just sort of, it's likely there's more attack vector, vectors. Mm -hmm. And then your job as the CISO or just the security person or the developer thinking about security is it's just getting harder every day. It's kind of crazy. And if uh, and then you look at things like what were those attacks like on? I think they were demonstrated on Intel Spectre and what's the other one? Oh, Heartbleed. No, it's not the one I'm thinking of. 
look that up in a minute. But oh, the two NSA ones. Yeah, I know yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, it's um, yeah, where you could kind of look at timing of things. Just meltdown, f- specter and meltdown. You could you could you could figure out like what's happening in the computer, and this is just super clever. Um, that was in the microprocessor Sophisticated, yes. kind of an attack. Um, you know, it's like wow, it's like. Well, then we had the thing that I was dealing with when I was at the power industry, of course, was Stuxnet, which was terrifying. Yeah, yeah. You know. So it's just some of these things are crazy, you know. So and you're dealing with attacks from so just the inherent complexity, but then the sophistication of the attacks. So you got everything from you know the kid in their basement hacking around to more sophisticated attacks from like organized crime, let's say, or semi-organized crime, let's whatever you want to call it. And then you've got you know, nation state level mm-hmm. attacks, which is going to be, it's like, well, how do you defend against that as a company when you have orders of magnitude, less resources, you know, and they've just got a bunch of hundreds of PhD mathematicians, computer scientists trying to figure out how to. Yeah. It used to be, you could how just to, how to get in. Yeah. You mm. could unplug yourself from the internet. You can't do that right. anymore. So it's it, impossible. It's, <laughs> And then, of course, it's like, well, and then, you know, what part of our world then uses these systems, computers and software, what runs on it? So it's it's a higher and higher percentage all the time. Right. Right. So if, if you can break in and nothing runs on computers or very little, you know, then, you know, the scope of damage you could do is much smaller than if. If everything runs on computers, you know, and you can break every, you know, household appliance in the entire planet, just as an example, or every car, you know, because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're they're set up to, you know, take uh, over-the-air updates and things like that, you know, it's like break every car in the world, you know, you know, it's kind of a big deal. So in the old days, like you couldn't connect to your car over the internet, so uh, now you can. Yep. Like if, um, so it, it's. Uh, so the stakes are higher, even if the problem hadn't gotten harder, but it has gotten harder. So it's just such a big deal. And I'm saying by trend, I'm saying it's going to get harder every year for like the next 10 years. And the stakes are going to get higher every year for the next 10 years. And we've seen, you know, there's plenty of examples in the news and so forth of things that have happened. So I, I just I would predict it's going to get worse. Right. So you cannot be too paranoid. Thank you right. for saying uh, that. <laughs> and now, of course, we still need to get work done. So I'm a big proponent of, you know, you can't create too much friction. And, and I think a lot of the classic things to do to, around security, like you could do them all and you could still have holes. Well, we, we try and prepare. I mean, you've seen, I think you've been privy to some of the things that we discuss at the board meetings specifically. Um, we're very lucky uh, to have Dwight and some other members of the board who actually meet off cadence to talk just about security, which is rare. And I appreciate that time. And one of the things that we do as a team, as a security team with development, with other groups within the company, is we run mock scenarios, tabletop exercises. And just happenstance had that we ran a tabletop exercise for a pandemic literally two weeks before we were hit with uh, with the, the pandemic that we got hit with. So we had tested a lot of things. We, the pivot was large, you know, it wasn't small, but it wasn't like, oh my gosh, how do we deal with this? It wasn't like the headless chicken routine. And I don't know whether to cry and go home or <laughs> embrace your your prediction. I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I, I had the, you know, the pleasure of meeting Vince Cerf recently, who you know, the godfather of the internet, and basically we were talking about hearing aids of all things because we both wear the same hearing aid. But then we got chatting about the internet, and I was like, "Did you ever think it would be like this?" And he, he just shook his head and said, "No." Yeah, because what, what else can you say? <laughs> your hearing aid could be hacked. I mean, <laughs> well, that's at some where point, we were. <laughs> right? Bluetooth and so forth, and basically it was I could see his and computer. he could see yeah, mine. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what you do then, but uh, the um, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> the point is everything is a computer now. Yeah. You know, your, yep. your watch. Connection is vulnerability. Yeah. So anyway, but at, so from the Mongo, then just taking that thesis or hypothesis about security and then applying it to MongoDB, you know, so our goal is just, you know, you can never be 100% sure you're secure, but is just to be extremely paranoid 
and vigilant about it and do what we can. And, and, and that's why we're, you know, we're adding features to the product now that are about security that are, I think, you know, fairly innovative. Like the queryable encryption is something that is, it might be the first database to have that feature. Can, can, I, can I ask you to just, for the listeners, explain at a high level what queryable encryption is? Yes. So, you know, obviously zero trust is a big term these days, right? So, and, you know, if you use a third-party service like MongoDB Atlas, where it's sort of a in the cloud and we just make it work for you and you don't have to manage it yourself, and, and that's very helpful, I think. Um, but then you're like, well, am I trusting this third-party? So then, so I'd like to trust them as little as possible, right? And, but you can also say the same thing about your own internal organization. It doesn't really change when you do it yourself. Um, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I have, if there's a database team in my big company and they run all the databases, you know, I'm kind of trusting them with my data if I am a department and I have an app and I have data, right? It's like, okay, are you guys secure? <laughs> uh, um, you know, and so forth and so on. And, you know, the problem doesn't go away just by being not in the cloud, for example, or, or on a service like that. But you do have to vet it. Actually, it's you have to vet your internal people or systems and processes if you do it yourself. And likewise, you should vet the vendors. So, you, you know, we talk about supply chain, but... You know, part of your supply chain is your internal supply chain. I mean, in particular in large companies like a Fortune 500 company, right, where it's so big, you probably got these organizations which are servicing internal groups. You know, it's, they might as well be separate companies because, you know, it's such a big company. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're in a company like Fortune 100, 500, you could imagine whatever you think about when you think about security and supply chain, do that internally too. Like, just think of each department as a supply chain thing, if it is a supplier for you. So I think, you know, the best thing to do is to assume, like, well, this, you know, the hardening of security. Let's, you know, the, the conservative thing to do would be just to assume it's not perfect. And then what can we do? Well, the best thing to do then is would be zero trust or as little trust as possible. Right. So. One thing we can do is, you know, obviously we want to store data in databases, is we could store the data in the database encrypt, in an encrypted format, right? Where, you know, the, let's say we have a, a service that has the data and does something with it, it's confidential and important or something, and uh, I want to store it in a database, but that service could encrypt it and then send it over the wire to the database and it could be stored in the database on disk encrypted and it's it's stored on in storage encrypted in the database program right which theoretically or machine which could theoretically be attacked um it's encrypted there and then it was also encrypted on the wire all the way there so so this is fairly ideal so it'd be gee this would be nice it's just everything the database is encrypted but it's then it's like well it's not really a database anymore because now it doesn't do anything except storage now you just have maybe a key value store right because how could you search and how can you query yeah how can you query right so other than you know it would be fairly easy to do um identity queries right like where you know, where you say, give me all the fields where X equals three. And but I've encrypted the three and it's some long <laughs> encrypted thing, uh, byte stream. And, and then so it's where X equals this long encrypted byte stream. You know, database doesn't know it's three. It just has this encrypted form. It, so it's fairly straightforward to just do the the basic queries of equality queries, let's call them. Yeah, you know, or X equals Y, right? So, so you could do that without a lot of fancy technologies. Um, and I think we've had that a few versions back and we called, that was the original MongoDB field level encryption, mm -hmm. which we did because uh, we definitely thought this was important. Um, that was not theoretically super hard problem. 
you know, it's stored in a database encrypted. It comes over the wire encrypted. But the only query you can do is equality or maybe not equal to also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And um, so the goal now is like, well, the, I mean, this is a database. You know, I'd like to be able to do queries, not just identity so you know can we do more than that so and so researchers are doing a lot of work on this um, including some that we are working with directly who who work either full-time or part-time at MongoDB yeah we Um, have we have four full-time cryptographers now yeah and then some of the researchers I think from Brown or um the company called Oroki, which we bought. Yeah, Oroki, yep. which we acquired. But there, some, and then there's some folks who are they're still at Brown as CS professors and doing security research, but they are also consultants for us. So the research that went into Oroki, the startup which we acquired, and you can go read those papers. It's based on published peer-reviewed papers um, in terms of some of the things they did around queryable encryption. Um, so basically, we're building that technology into the database, and uh, I think we're in—I don't know what we call it—a beta or version of it pre, now. Pre, pre GA. Pre, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's in the production release right now. It's in the pipeline. But, but that feature is—is is, uh, I would call it. It's for pre-production use, so you know you can start writing your code that makes use of it now, and uh, uh, it'll it'll be stamped as production ready soon. So um, the goal would be to let you put things in the database that are encrypted before they get to the database, but certain query operations are still possible beyond the trivial ones like identity, right? So, for example, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember uh, what else is possible so far, but um, I believe you can do like prefix and suffix queries, which is pretty useful. And there are some other ones I don't have in the list off the top of my head. And beyond what we have so far, I think there'll be more in the future, although that may involve new research and inventions by either us or others. So, prefix, suffix, it's it's a little bit analogous to greater than less than but um a little different it just turns out if you do if it's actually prefixed rather than greater than you can do it and still be secure with reasonable performance um so, so does, it, does it have to do with key distribution is there a key there's key exchange and do you think there'll ever be a time when there's zero zero lost functionality between Even secured fields yeah. Well, overhead is one thing, right? Because the data is encrypted. Mm-hmm. So there's an encryption decryption. But there today there's prefix and suffix searching. Search is a phenomenally valuable space and and with Atlas Search we've got we've got some incredible uh, capability there. Do you ever see a point where there'll be like zero difference between encrypted field capabilities in MongoDB? I think that's a hard question. Um, it's not, you know, can you do everything with encrypted that you would want to do? I actually haven't thought about it enough that maybe there's a clear answer. So, but I haven't thought about. It. But, but so I, I don't know. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume for now that maybe not. But 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 maybe that's okay because you know what? Well, okay, you know, let's store some data in the in the database. Not every field is equally important. Mm-hmm. You know, social security number, pretty important. Yeah. You know, certain, you know, healthcare values in the healthcare database, pretty important. Some other ones, a little less important. Um, uh, so it, it's really, so at this point, it's like, can we just get the really critical ones? Um, which is probably a minority of the fields into this and still have some capabilities in the database like like the query building and things like this you know over time we're going to do as much as we can and make sense i mean currently there there is some overhead to it it's explained in the documentation and but you know if you're picking these these critical fields rather than just everything is encrypted it's okay i would say so um 
and and you know we'll see as it's it's an area of current research so um we'll see what happens over time and how efficient we can make these things and there's probably some optimizations to be done just in the code that's more of a it's not a research problem it's more an engineering problem right that we can do too Mm -hmm. like improving the, the performance there's all, you know, the other thing is it's just you got to be really careful because you might think, you know, I could probably I could probably make up some way to do like what we were talking about in half an hour. But maybe it has holes in it and there there's certain attacks against it. Right. And vulnerabilities or, you know, maybe not, you know, just, maybe it's not just completely broken, but but maybe you can figure out certain things uh, that you shouldn't. Um, around the edge or maybe it's just flat out wrong so you really you, you really need to think very carefully about this as you're doing the research and you know and 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 having this stuff it's based on you know published peer-reviewed research is good because the peer review is pretty darn important because somebody might read it and know the peer and they're like well what if this what if some attacker does x you know and then you're like oh and then you're like uh um I'll get back to you. You know, <laughs> maybe I have to go fly with this. So, so, so um, that's really helpful because it, it, it's really not that unusual for there to be a security mechanism algorithm that has an issue. I mean, just look at encryption algorithms. Like the, a lot of them have had flaws in them, right? So, um, just flat traditional secret key encryption, they could have weaknesses, yeah. right? Where they're not as you know, they're, they're easier to crack than you thought in terms of, say, um, time complexity of some kind of a attack on it, brute force attack or something. So also it's just things like, you know, imagine, you know, we have some value like three. We want to, going back to the fill level encryption, we want to store it in a database, right? You read it back. And now imagine that that field gets updated later and it gets written again and it's, the unencrypted value is three again, right? So in the perfect world, when it gets set the second time, the encrypted form would be different, (laughs) right? Because like if I could watch the network or something, let's say, um, of course you can use, you know, um, encryption over the network too, but but actually by the, once it's in the RAM of the database server, it's not encrypted. Right, or it's not the packet data isn't encrypted, so you just got whatever it was encrypted as from the source. So if somebody was had breached that, you know, and they were seeing, you know, the, the encrypted form of three before and the encrypted form of three, you know, later when it was set later, you know, if those encrypted forms are the same, they don't know what the value is, but they know it didn't change. So they learn something, and we don't really want them to learn something. So ideally. Like even if you set the same value a second time, should be a different encrypted value. value. And you could also imagine like if um, you know you have a bunch of documents about people, and uh, you know there's a field that has a certain value, you know like true or false for uh, you know you have this disease. You wouldn't want the encrypted form to be the same for all the users, right? Because maybe I'm a user in there and I know I have that disease. So then if I saw that, okay, the encrypted value is, you know, blah, 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 for my document. Mm, then you know who else I know is it's to. true for me, right? So then I don't, you know, one attack is then you just look for everyone else with the same, the same encrypted value. value. So we don't, we're not doing that with the new creable encryption. It's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little smarter than that. So it, you know, so there's a lot of things to think about like that. So. It's not 100% about queryability. It's also about just generic robustness yeah. of doing field level encryption. And like that's an example of uh, a, a fairly simplistic kind of attack. You can imagine if you just do very, you know, oh, encrypt the field on the client and shoot it over. The server doesn't know what it is. But to your point earlier when you said, and I'm cognizant of time, what time do you have until? Um, I'm pretty good. Because you mentioned earlier, things are going to get worse before they get better. I'm not even sure if they'll ever get better, but we can live in hope. So with something like queryable encryption, if I'm the bad guy hacker, you know, data is gold. 
So I'm going after data, I'm going after information, I'm going after your bank account details so I can empty it. If it's encrypted end to end, I can't make head nor tail of it. I'm going to go to the next place that's not encrypted. Do you see something like this queryable encryption being a game changer for the security world? Because that's where I'm coming at it from. It's like, what can I do to make our customers more secure in what we are doing with their data? And also on a personal level, you know, what's my bank doing with my data to, to secure it from the bad guys? Yeah, um, it is true that, you know, it's sort of like if it looks like your front door has a better lock than your neighbor's front door, then maybe the robber goes to your neighbor's house. Be stickers with a- <laughs> I mean, so for, for an individual that works, but for society, it doesn't really change anything maybe overall. So, yeah. So, <laughs> But if it's that one individual who was going to rob my house, I'm quite happy right. if it works. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it makes sense as a... Uh, attacker to you know the thing you just do these very broad sometimes um attacks and you just see what where you get a success right so if there's some vuln- if there's some vulnerability and it's one computer out of a thousand but if i go hit a thousand of them or a million of them i find a thousand that are vulnerable so um but then if you put your criminal hat on and you're walking down the street and you see the label that says you know Guardian security is like, oh, there must be someone we're stealing there, so I'll wait till they're wait till they're out and go back and then go take a peek. Sometimes, you know, I mean, you can flip it on yeah, its head. Yeah, and you know, there's no silver bullet, right? So the latest thing from us, you know, we're doing lots of things around security, right? But kind of the latest, most maybe most innovative at the moment thing would be the queryable encryption, but. There's no silver bullet. There's no one thing you can do that solves all problems. So it's, it's. I think from our point of view, it's just it's a never-ending effort, you know, to make it better, you know. So we'll, you know, we'll try to come up some some new innovative things around the security, and then we'll try to just do more and more and more about all the classic things you do, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of different attacks, you know. So. You know, having the data encrypted is good, but, you know, like, um, you know, ransomware, right? Like, okay, great, it's encrypted, but I, I stole it and you don't have it anymore. Right. Okay, I didn't solve that problem for you with queryable encryption. True. Right. Um, but now, the thing they have ransomed is gobbledygook, hopefully, still. Right, but it's sort of, do you need the info? Exactly. I can't read it, but right. what's it worth to you? Do you want you? to read it, yes. Would you like it back with me never having seen it? <laughs> yes. And, and would you like to pay me? So so things like that are things we think about. And Is, is that where something like multi-cloud could come in then? Having it, having multiple copies on multiple clouds and making it just more difficult to find things. Yeah, yeah, MongoDB Atlas supports multi-cloud, so right where you can have replicas that are on different clouds. So, you know, if somebody was able to get in on one cloud provider, either our account through some attack on us or some attack on the cloud provider, you know, that doesn't affect getting to the other cloud provider. So that yeah, that heterogeneity does give you some safety in terms of not losing the data completely. I mean, I, you're right, there's no silver bullet, but if, if you've got zero trust and queryable encryption or, you know, field level encryption and multi-cloud, right. it's like you're wrapping and wrapping and wrapping. Right. Maybe, I mean, the more cloud providers I add, maybe the more I care the data is encrypted. Right, because obviously, you know, you might put your data on two or three, but, um, you know, if you just take a thought experiment, you know, if you had it on, you know, if you were running on 50 cloud providers with a replica of the data, you know, you would be like, well, I think one out of 50 is going to get hacked. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's like, well, they can't destroy the data because I've got 49 other copies they can't break, get into. If I'm ransomware, right. there's Unless you're partitioning and multi cloud sharding. <laughs> yes, which is a different topic. But <laughs> the 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 basic idea here was just that there's redundant copies, yeah. like replicas, on the different providers. So um, yeah, so there's there's a lot to think about. But so all of these things, you know, we're thinking about and trying to be paranoid about and do the right things and in you know there's a million things you know just all the classic stuff you know physical security you know social engineering you know things that 
completely different than the topic we were talking about but it's sort of uh you know you'd like to you know make everything as good as you can and then if anything does go wrong minimize the damage mm -hmm. right so if something did go wrong somebody did get the document all the, all the super confidential fields are encrypted okay the damage is minimized at least so and hopefully they never get in at all well i could keep you here talking all day and i know you don't have all day so i really appreciate it do you have one last piece of advice for me as CISO, apart from look for another job maybe serving coffee somewhere um you know one thing i think is important and i think maybe this is obvious to you and you already know this is just i think in an organization is don't have one security policy for everything because usually when you add procedures and processes and so forth there's overhead and you're slowing things down. You're making your organization less agile, right? So don't apply the same security rules for the organization for your most critical systems and your least critical systems, right? So if you're a hospital, the patient health records, you know, there should be a lot of rules around that or processes but the expense reporting system at the hospital doesn't need to be as hardened. And if you take what you did for the health records and the expense report system, maybe it takes twice as long to deploy that and twice as many as work and cost. And it's like, well, why did you do that? So know your crown jewels and yeah, protect yeah. them accordingly. So you, yeah. you need to have two or three, you know, a few buckets. It doesn't have to be that many. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of treat them differently so you just don't lose all agility and, and productivity, right? Because there's a challenge because it's like you want to be secure, yep. but you need to be agile. You need to move faster than your competitors or at least as fast, right? So how do you do that? Well, I mean, maybe if their security is bad, you can't and yours is good but you can really make yourself slow is just to have this this super high level of rules restrictions policies procedures for on a, things mass, that are yeah. not you know like yeah i don't want to lose my expense report data but the company will still keep going if but we lose we probably it. won't yeah. go out of business then, <laughs> right so um you know so so i i think that's important and you know it's very it's pretty easy if if your job is all about security to kind of just think you know think of all the things you need to do and just want them done on everything um but but maybe not you were the first ceo at this company you were one of the co-founders i'm the first ceo at the company when you founded this company, when it first started, what state was security in? Yeah, so, you know, we started working on MongoDB. We, we started from a blank sheet of paper. And, uh, you know, so we're going back, you know, to 2008, let's say. And, you know, your first goal is to have something, it's like a prototype, proof of concept, right? Like, is this actually useful? Right. So when there's no users, you know, security isn't the biggest problem because there's nothing to lose. Um, now we have people, we have, you know, banks and hospitals and things doing super mission critical things with MongoDB and with Atlas. So it's, it's a totally different situation. And the problem is much worse now in the world of information security um, than 15 years ago. So, you know, when we started, we were like, uh, you know, one thought was it was, you know, when I would look at the way security worked in traditional databases, accounts, you know, access control, things like that, other things, it just seemed like, I mean, some of it seemed a little, little off, like um, you can create in a lot of the old relation to databases, you can create users and you can give them passwords and things like that. But it's like, well, I kind of need the concept, like a user might be a system, right? It might, or service, it might not be a person, but it's like, well, I kind of need a, that user to be the service or the person, not just in the database, right? So I really want some holistic for my whole system concept of identity and uh, 
I don't want it just in the database, right? So that that was, you know, so we want to use something more like, you know, LDAP or whatever comes after that and the mounting systems, you know, that's that, you know, we can use for everything we're building, you know? So hopefully it works with the database and it also works if I'm doing service-oriented architecture in the services and it works for my ops people and kind of does all the right things and there's tons of products for that now so but back then i mean there was much less stuff but it was like it was pretty it seemed to me that it was clear that this shouldn't just be in the database but at the same time i was kind of wanted to see how this was going to shake out so uh, we started out just with a basically no security so it, the concept was just run this in a trusted environment, right? And we're, we won't give you any security features because it's sort of like, well, which ones do you want? You, you know, and then without getting into all these problems I was talking about of, you know, okay, I got to get um, in the database. I'm creating a user for with these privileges. And then over here in this product, I'm creating the same user with these privileges. And in the app, there's it notion of that role with these privileges you know it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense so we started out and i was thinking like well let's consider like memcached so in memcached there the notion was it just runs in a secure environment and a lot of companies use memcached right and it's just like in the heart it needs to be in its own you know fenced environment vlan or something and it's sort of like, well, let's just start with that. And then over time, we'll add security features and we'll ask our users what they want. And now today, there's tons of stuff. And, uh, but, but that was the very beginning. And it was sort of, you know, at the beginning, you know, you could critique it and you can say, well, this is kind of crazy. There's no security in here. But um, to some degree, that's fine. That's not completely invalid critique. But... It was also like, well, the old way of doing it is is going away anyway. So mm -hmm. I don't want to quite do that. Um, I want to do the new way, and we'll we'll do it as we as we can. And we have now. And I think um, so. It, it, it's it's interesting because we've gone over the fifteen years from one extreme end of the spectrum, which is you make sure you the deployer the, the ops team you know just make sure it's in a secure environment and there's no security and it's very simple like there's nothing to get confused by and mess up also mm -hmm. um but now we're at something that's kind of more at the opposite end of the spectrum is we, and also just because the problem is much worse now mm -hmm. yeah I think as well, I, I was interviewed recently by a magazine, I find it hurts, and uh, one of the things that they loved was that we hadn't monetized security, because we were talking about Oracle and how they had basically monetized, and I don't know if we want to bash Oracle, but how they had basically monetized it. You know, when you buy an Oracle database, you have to buy security on top of that, and it's usually at 50% of what you just paid just oh. for the security module. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, if you have time? I'm just curious, in your wildest dreams, did you, did you think about a MongoDB that exists today? Did, did some of the things that you thought about back then come to fruition? And, and how far beyond what you were originally thinking has the company gone? Well, once we switched to just solely working on the database, I think the original thesis has held up quite well. And there hasn't been any shocking surprises or changes. So, um, you know, we're kind of create this application data platform, you know, a way to build modern applications using modern software engineering methodologies that involve a lot of iteration and a lot of data that's, you know, has complex structures, maybe it's polymorphic, things like that, make that all very easy. Right. So, you know, you know, in relational, you know, it's, you, you know, imagine if you're trying to be agile and you have a system, you want to do a release every day, right? Because you're iterating. Well, do you want to do like a schema migration script every day? No. <laughs> okay. So it's like, well, it's like, well, I need a solution for that. And I'm not 
blaming relational at all for that because it was invented decades before agile development methodology was invented. So it's like, you know, nobody was asking them for that back then. But when we started on, on MongoDB, that did exist. So it's like, well, if, if, if it's possible to add a new field to a document in the collection and not every other field in the collection already has it, or I add and, or the other documents in the collection have the field that's a different data type um, than this new one, or I needed it to be, I need it to be in, you know, an array now instead of a singleton value. There's, there's no schema migration. So it's just things like that kind of fit well with the development methodologies of today. And uh, um, so, so that was very much on our mind. You know, it's like, what would allow me to be productive and fast, but in a rigorous way, not in a way that's full of bugs and even aesthetic from an engineer perspective for a data layer, for an operational database. And we were developers, and so we just tried to build what we wished we had. And so we had two real things we wanted, which is one is that agility side, you know, where I can deal with modern data shapes and things like the polymorphism and the, 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 the data, the schema, let's call it schema evolution, okay? Um, that occurs in an iterative agile development situation. We wanted that to all be easy. I mean, obviously objects are a thing, so we wanted, you know, if I have object style data, it shouldn't be hard to store it. And so we call that documents because we're not storing the code, we're just storing the data. That's, so we call it documents, not objects, which I think makes sense. I think one of the, you know, one of the big ideas from databases is separating data from the code. Right, we go back far enough in time, you know, you're doing things like maybe have a, a B tree library and you're linked into <laughs> your program or you're using vSAM and it's, it's not really a separate database uh, or whatever, but that's going back a long ways. So, um, so, so separating the data from the code is important. And, uh, but, but yeah, that comment, that concept of schema evolution, I think was important for us is it's sort of that that should be easy because we are iterating, right? So today's schema is not the schema six months from now. And how do you deal with that? So, you know, sometimes people will say MongoDB is schemaless. That's not true. That's probably, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's, there's always an implicit schema. You should always design a schema. And we do have fun features now where you can totally enforce the schema just like you could in, in a traditional database. But you don't have to. And by default, it doesn't ask you to because um, it, it's very easy to put a bunch of junk in the database without violating the, the schema rules, right? So I think, so that was kind of the thesis. So we wanted that and then we wanted horizontal scalability. And if we can scale horizontally on commodity hardware, like commodity servers, then it's it should fit well with cloud computing. So that was part of our goal. That is sort of a it might be like a lemma from the just the concept of horizontal scalability that it, without, without the user having to build it themselves, and and you know and things like just fault tolerance and failover. Like I, I don't I don't want to have to build that myself. You know you know if you had an old database, you had master slave replication, but. Like how does the failover work? And then if you do failover to the secondary from the primary, how do you get the primary back in sync later? Well, that's all pretty much automatic with MongoDB, right? So that was part of our goal too. So it's just like, what do we want in 2008 to build like modern applications as an application data platform? And so then we started, we built that. And it's like, and, and one thing we wanted is we wanted like fairly high degree of functionality, you know? You know, we wanted to be able to do ad hoc queries. We went, so we had a query optimizer, you know, we wanted to be able to do sorting and, uh, and you know, we, we didn't have transactions in the early days, but we do now because um, with sharding, that's non-trivial. Uh, but basically it's a long answer that saying that that was a thesis and I think it really hasn't changed, mm -hmm. right? And, and just really focusing on, you know, the database 
mostly a database behind an application. So it's an, op it's an online database or an operational database or an old 2P database, pick your term. And um, so the, the original idea has held up very well and there hasn't been a lot of like searching for the right product concept. And then it's just, you know, so we really like, this is the idea and then in our perfect world, huge numbers of developers and applications are, are, are using this as their data layer. And that's <laughs> our goal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're still on the path, the journey, but we've made it pretty far. So one, one last question, and I don't know if it's really a question or, or just asking to illuminate. Like this is, MongoDB is not your first success, first wild success. What were you successful with prior to MongoDB? Yeah, so I was one of the co-founders of a few startups. I probably tried a couple of things that didn't work quite as well, but the ones that worked well before MongoDB were DoubleClick, Business Insider, and Guilt Group. And also, so just seeing what was done at all of these companies building systems and also just having friends in the industry who were CTOs building new either in enterprises or in startups building new things and seeing how we're all doing things and all the problems which occur, you know, including, you know, things like scaling the data layer or, you know, and then seeing things like, okay, you know, we think about things like asset properties and transactions as being important and so forth. And then we stick a memcached farm in front of the database. Okay. So the data in the cache is stale, right? So the, you know, the, the, these various guarantees you had in the database on the data being kind of current and so forth aren't there anymore. But based, you know, everyone stuck memcached in front of databases because they were not fast enough. So, so, so it was, you know, we were looking at all this and it's like, there's got to be a better way to do this. So between all those startups and friends doing startups and it's just like, okay, like, like I know if you're using memcached in front of a database, you know, people aren't going to tell you, well, that's just fundamentally wrong and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> at that point in time, right? But it's like, well, it's sort of wrong though. It's just, we don't have a better solution right now. Mm. So that was kind of part of the catalyst for, you know, trying to build something new. It was fascinating. Yeah. Thank you Great. so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for spending time. No problem. Have a great chat. Thanks so much to Dwight for joining us today. And thanks to Lena for leading the discussion. Check the show notes for links, some of the things we discussed. Once again, MongoDB University. It's been completely redesigned. And one of the things I love about it is the in-browser experience. You don't even have to install MongoDB to go through the exercises. Check that out at learn.mongodb.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.